Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday and that we are completing the first full week of 2022. Well, you know, the last time I was on the air, we learned that Thomas Paine had pretty much become destitute, that he was uh, dismissed uh, from his uh, post being that of Secretary of Committee on Foreign Affairs, and he seemed to um, have a conflict with those whom, um, whom no longer shared the same um, beliefs that he had. However, um, men like Robert Morris, although he may have had it, appeared to have had it out for Thomas Paine, he did agree on, the, on a couple of things with Paine, being uh, religious freedom, as well as uh, advocating full-scale independence from England, but there just appeared to be um, many in Congress, not all, but a good number of men from Congress whom actually did not like the fact that Thomas Paine was meddling into affairs that, for one, didn't involve him, but two, that he just needed to not be poking his nose in. You know, Thomas Paine didn't like the idea of men profiteering off of the um, war itself. He felt that if it was one thing to... Um, make money, it was to do it in an ethical way, but to invest it properly. Uh, for Thomas Paine, he is investing pretty much everything that he has published and um, that has uh, sold, like Common Sense sold um, about 150,000 copies, um, were printed and sold uh, in 1777, but Thomas Paine is not uh, reaping all the profits. He's giving as much of the money that, uh, that he made off of common sense to the greater cause, and that is to fund uh, the war itself. We have to remember, folks, we do have a um, what we call like a provisional government, but we don't have a Federal Reserve system that can circulate money, or in other words, print money on a daily basis. Remember, the money that we have in, during this time, it's either specie being... Um, like gold or silver, but very few people can attain um, specie, or we call the hard money. But most people are dependent upon paper money, but even paper money itself. It may be worth something one day, and then its value fluctuates uh, where it takes a nosedive the next. So for Thomas Paine, he is now, um, at this point, destitute. He's poor. He's kind of broke. He's on his last leg in terms of survival. Do you think he'll remain destitute and poor for a long period of time? Well, why don't we find out? Because our first leadoff question is going to be the following for this segment. After getting dismissed from Congress, did Thomas Paine have friends in greater Philadelphia whom came to his aid? Yes, he did. Many provided him with food, lodging, money, which Paine himself personally did not take for granted. Payne, like any other man under those circumstances, would have been very foolish to take um, what was provided to them for granted. I think it's easy for all of us at times to accidentally take something for granted. But when you're in a time of crisis like this one, it's not just you, but you know that the country as a whole is in a crisis. And the Continental Army is once again in a crisis, too most notably after the debacles at Germantown and Brandywine, Thomas Paine now 
is in a um, is stuck between a rock and a hard place. But thank heavens there are still people out there who care about him. I mean, yes, there were those in Congress who did care about him. They may have been in the minority, but there are enough people outside the um, halls of Congress or outside the uh, State House of Philadelphia whom know pain and are willing to still uh, take a chance on him, even in times of hardship. Most of you all probably don't know who this person is, but that's okay because I didn't know anything about him until I read the book. But his ma this man's name is um, Owen Biddle. Who is Owen Biddle? Well, for starters, he had served as um, Pennsylvania's governor. He had served as uh, that state's uh, governor at one time. He also served as an officer in the Revolutionary War. But most importantly, he became friends with Thomas Paine through the American Philosophical Society. Okay, uh, that's the 101 um, piece right there. But if we take a step above 101 um, knowledge on Owen Biddle, what would that be? Well, Owen Biddle comes to Thomas Paine's aid by providing him with a clerk's job, including a salary which enabled Payne to continue working on new writings as well as volunteering in numerous citizen committees. You know, it really, it never hurts to have connections. It also never hurts to burn a bridge. The last thing you don't want to do is burn a bridge with someone. And Thomas Payne has been very fortunate since, um, since the time he first stepped um, foot on American soil that he has um, made some very, very um, essential connections that have um, helped him get where he's at. I mean, the success he attained in writing Common Sense as well as with the American crisis, though that success just didn't happen overnight. Um, he had to have people uh, be willing to publish those documents for him to where the greater audiences, being the larger American uh, population, would be able to read those documents and be inspired by his work. So Owen Biddle provides Thomas Paine with a clerk's job, and not just a job, but a salary that is um, doable. It's We're not talking like in today's time, folks, of like, say, $250,000, but it's a salary for the time that is reasonable to where Thomas Paine can um, continue writing not just continue writing, but writing that will lead to um, other pamphlets um, down the road as this uh, war with England still continues. But also, it's not just the writing piece of it, but being able to volunteer in numerous citizen committees that will lead to direct contacts with Philadelphia's social and political elite. By having uh, contact with Philadelphia's social and political elite, this will allow him to voice concerns impacting not just Pennsylvania, but greater America from a social, economic, and political standpoint. You know, those connections are everything, folks. Whom you know sometimes can depend on where it is you might land a job. And not just a job, but a job that, um, that will... Uh, have long-term security. So, it, it appears now that Thomas Paine's on the rebound. I don't know how long he was uh, struggling, but the bottom line is, is that when one door closes, 
And when the going gets tough, you know, you have two choices. You can remain on the sidelines and, you know, have pity for yourself and, you know, and not do something about it. But Thomas Paine has decided to do the opposite. Okay, the going gets tough, the tough get going. And for Thomas Paine, he's in that category of the tough get going. But it's all, but it's also attributed to the fact that he also has connections that enable him to get going, to keep moving on when things might still appear to be um, tough and unpleasant. So it's fair to say that Thomas Paine is a very resilient man, to say the least. Now, this may seem um, like a random uh, piece of information to know, but I think it's important. Early 1779, of course, this is this is the same year that Thomas Paine was dismissed um, from Congress, but in early 1779, a brutal winter storm took place. It wasn't just a brutal winter storm. It was a very brutal winter, to say the least, that took place in, in the United States' uh, northeast region. But this winter storm, being as brutal as it was, was much worse than what had taken than what had taken place a year earlier from the winter of 1777 to 1778 at Valley Forge Pennsylvania this winter storm impacted um every state in what we now know as the northeast of course at the time in 1779 you have the northern states the middle states and the southern states but the reason why this brutal winter was so bad is it's not so much that it exceeded um, the hardships that had occurred in the winter of 1777-1778 at Valley Forge, but snowfall totals in 1779 were so intense to where many of Washington's troops went four to five days without essential fruit, without essential food provisions. Essential food, food provisions to me um, refer to um, being meat and bread. Can you imagine, folks, being in the Continental Army in the winter of 1779 and you are forced to go four to five days without essential food provisions because of uh, what Mother Nature has uh, thrown at thrown at, at the greater population in terms of um, unforeseen uh, weather circumstances that even Washington himself could not control. I think it's fair to say that probably some of these men, I don't know if some, maybe a good number of them could have died from starvation. You know, we have to keep in mind, folks, we don't have any grocery stores nearby. And even as as tough as Valley Forge was, and historians know that there were um, quarrels between the Continental Army and farmers right on the outskirts of Valley Forge who refused to even provide food essential food provisions to the Continental Army at Valley Forge. And why was that? Because for many of these farmers, they had their own families to think about. They had to feed their families. And in some instances, um, Continental Army uh, troops um, fixed their uh, rifles or muskets and held a family hostage just so that they could take the family's livestock. So we have to remember, even when the weather is brutal outside that history has uh, proven to us that not everyone has been equipped with the most essential of, pro of uh, food provisions to survive under the most dire of um, 
circumstances. I don't know how the Continental Army even um, made it to uh, when uh, made it to the very end when it came down to uh, being able to defeat the uh, British at Yorktown. Of course, I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of things, but but when you think about all the sacrifices, when you think about all the highs and lows, the uncertain, the moments of uncertainty, just when, just when it couldn't get any worse and now all of a sudden it has yeah i can't imagine going four to five days without essential food provisions i mean this is not something we should be taking for granted because there are people in countries around the world that sadly even to this day are end up going a couple of days or more without essential food provisions because food itself is scarce all right, our next question here is the following. Uh, where did British forces decide to take their course of military fighting following the defeat at Monmouth, New Jersey in late June of 1778? Okay, why, um, why are the British forces deciding to change their course? Well, it turns out that the fighting up north and in, and in the um, middle colonies, most notably around uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, they haven't really resulted in any uh, true, um, what do you call it, watershed victories that would pretty much uh, extinguish all hopes uh, for, um, for the Americans to achieve what they uh, are wanting to achieve on the battlefield, and that is independence from England. Yes, the British routed the Americans at New York. Yes, the British um, held their ground at Brandywine in Germantown. But there just has not been a huge knockout blow to where the army collapses. And when the army collapses, the whole cause for independence itself goes, goes down the tube as well. It seems as though for every defeat the Continental Army has endured, there has always been a victory that has made up for it to where the light for, independent, for independence while it still remain a, while it still remains as a small beacon of light for um, all signs of hope, the bottom line is that small flicker of hope is what's keeping the army going afloat, including Thomas Paine's writings as a means of inspiration and morale. So as for why the British are deciding to take their course of military fighting in a different direction after uh, being defeated at Monmouth, uh, New Jersey in late June 1778, it's due largely in part because British leadership from high above is deciding to, to send troops southward. And what do, I, what do I mean by southward, folks? How about going into the Carolinas in Georgia where they would become um, more convinced that existing populations of people down in the Carolinas and Georgia, and given that there are uh, many, um, there are a large concentration of populations in the Carolinas and Georgia whom are loyal to the king, aka loyalists, not just loyal to the king, but to England, the British military believes that these people, whom are loyal to king and country, would provide their own forces with enough essentials. What do I mean by essentials? Well, we're not talking uh, food provisions. I mean, yes, that's important, but that's not the probably not the core um, essential here. 
but how about an intelligence on the enemy? Maybe not the Patriot Army, but intelligence on um, families whom are not loyal to the crown, families whom, whom don't mind risking it all by providing essentials to what would eventually become a southern continental army, people whom are undecided, whose loyalties could change at a moment's notice. So for the British, for the British uh, military leadership high above, sending troops southward is also seen as a last resort because by the late 1770s, many in Parliament are beginning to ask themselves, why is this conflict going on much longer? We should have taken care of the, of the um, we should have t gotten this all um, straightened out in New York two years earlier when we routed Washington's army and forced them to retreat into New Jersey. Well, I do believe that the British um, had their opportunities to have um, quashed the rebellion, most notably the Hessians. Had the Hessians um, taken that um, double spy agent's warnings a lot more seriously, um, they would have been able to have thwarted Washington's um, mission. In other words, they would have been able to have cut Washington's men off to where they would not have gotten into uh, positions to where they fired upon the um, garrison or what we call the post at Trenton where nearly a thousand of those uh, soldiers were stationed and perhaps Colonel Johann Rall would not have lost his life. So the British have been guilty of making uh, decisions that have uh, resulted not just so much in defeats when they've happened but they have been guilty upon not agreeing uh, unanimously from high above and their system of intelligence, it's fair to say, is one that revolves around the inner circle of upper-level leadership. For those of you who were with me when we discussed Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, intelligence on the Continental Army side was one that went from, um, from all directions, bottom to top, top to bottom, but preferably from bottom to top. How so? Well... It's one thing for someone above in the inner circle to have intelligence, but the Continental Army's leadership was one that was changing all the time early on in the war to where people value just about anyone's intelligence. Well, we're not talking about intelligence based upon a subject that you have a lot of knowledge in, but intelligence meaning, in this case, the information that you are, are providing to an officer about the whereabouts of the opposition's uh, movement in the direction they're coming in, to give you an example there. So going southward is going to be the last uh, strategy. The British feel if they go south, this is where they can really stick it to, um, to uh, the Continental Army. And by defeating the Continental Army in the south, they will be able to um, force her subjects, being the colonies, back under um, full submission to the crown. So, how do you think all this is going to play out? What do you think is the first uh, move? Who's going to make the first move now in the South? Is it going to be the British or the um, Patriot forces? Well, the winter of 1780, a British fleet is spotted 
not far off the Carolina coast near Charleston, South Carolina, prompting Thomas Paine, once he learns of this, to write American Crisis Number 8. I wonder how many more American Crisis essays this man could come up with, but you know what? The more American Crisis essays he, he uh, writes and distributes, the greater the greater the likelihood that people will still be interested in this conflict, that they will still have hope to believe that the longer the conflict lasts, the harder it will become for Britain to um, be able to achieve her objective. The bottom line is, the longer this war goes on, the greater the likelihood that even the British themselves can get worn out. So Thomas Paine writes American Crisis 8, which he addressed to England's people, reminding them that after five years of fighting, not just, after, not just so much five years of fighting, but that after five years of fighting, their military, being the most powerful in the world, the people of England's military had still failed in achieving their ultimate objective. And that ultimate objective was what, folks? Conquering, or rather I should say defeating, her subjects. The 13 colonies are now what we call states, to where submission to the crown would be restored. You know, it's one thing to force uh, someone to uh, submit to someone above, but even submission alone is not something that can always be achieved with a simple little stroke. Think about this. The British have, uh, they weren't able to, um, to defeat us completely up north or in the middle colonies. They still have another, um, this elephant being that represents the mightiest um, empire in the world. This elephant has another unforeseen journey. This elephant is also going to be marching into uncharted territory where it's not just her army that's going to go up against rebel forces. Her army is going to be going up against people whose loyalties will change at a moment's notice, whose loyalties will change for better or for worse to where at one time they decide that taking an oath of neutrality is okay or, an, or decide that by taking an oath for parole, meaning that they will not... Um, take up arms with the enemy, but all of a sudden when a uh, when an unforeseen um, when an unforeseen um, matter gets laid upon them without their proper consent, everything can change at a minute's notice or at a moment's notice. So in other words, loyalties are fragile folks. You may have a secured loyalty with a group of people one day, but when you issue a uh, statement, where those whom are neutral and those whom have taken up arms, whom have taken up an allegiance not to uh, fight, and all of a sudden that um, that um, those conditions are revoked without their consent, yeah, you're going to get angry, and then you're going to do the opposite, because now all of a sudden you've been cheated out of your of whatever fundamental uh, personal rights that you once had that were that were in play that are no longer there. That's just one of the many uh, unique factors behind the war in the southern colonies. And for those of you who were with me when we uh, discussed um, uh, 
the Swamp Fox and how Francis uh, Marion saved the American Revolution. When we did that uh, story uh, last year or in late 2020, remember uh, all about the loyalty piece because that was um, that was some very uh, intense stuff uh, that we talked about to say the least. So, so here we go into um, late March of 1780 into the middle of May of 1780. What siege took place in the American South being from March 29th to May 12th, 1780? Was it the siege of Savannah? Was it the siege of Wilmington, North Carolina? Or let me say this, choice A, was it the siege of Savannah, Georgia? Choice B, the siege of Wilmington, North Carolina? Or choice C, the siege of Charleston, South Carolina? The answer is choice C. From March 29th to May 12th, 1780, there was the siege of Charleston, South Carolina. This um, siege was one of those sieges that probably should not have been conducted. The commander of the um, Continental Army at the time in the South is Major General Benjamin Lincoln. He is a decent man. He had two choices. He could defend Charleston with the utmost honor, and by defending Charleston, at least he could say that he did not uh, back down without a fight. He didn't want to be seen by one sector of uh, Charleston society as a coward or a wimp, chicken. In other words, he wanted to be able to prove to uh, Charleston's people whom were not loyal to the crown that, hey, he had a force of men. He had a force of about 5,400 continental troops. While that seems like a tremendous force to, to take on an enemy, the only problem is that if you have a force of that size, or even if it was well below 5,400 men, and you lose, do all those men just go home back to their families and resume fighting for another day? Well, in that time of warfare, when the enemy lost, regardless of how many men were not wounded or killed, those men were not only forced to lay down their weapons and give up their weapons, they were surrendered. They surrendered. Some were sent to um, to prisons, makeshift prisons and uh, barracks on the outskirts of Charleston, and many uh, were forced to take uh, oaths of um, new, not just oaths of neutrality, but oaths to where they pledged not to uh, take up arms against the enemy. And if they did take up arms with the enemy, number one, they would have violated their parole, and two, it probably would have resulted in um, in other uh, serious consequences that might have even resulted in uh, being executed. So, for Benjamin Lincoln, yes, he has, um, in my opinion, he did something on one hand that was valiant, and that he gave it his best to try to um, put up a fight against um, the British. However, it was not meant to be, because Benjamin Lincoln, with the failure behind the siege of Charleston, the British captured 5,400 Continental troops under Major General Benjamin Lincoln's command, and it wasn't just so much that the troops that they took. How about the British taking 49 American ships and 120 boats? 
think about this, all these boats that have been taken, that will prevent the enemy from being able to engage in any kind of uh, intelligence that would involve having to navigate from one body of water to another. Well, think about it, folks, you know, going from point A to point B across a river. Of course, when we think of waters, we often think of oceans, but we have to keep in mind that um, that when you're fighting a battle inland, you know, away from the ocean, if you have if you need to navigate by water, it's going to be by lake or um, a river, and you have to have a boat to get by. The American loss at Charleston was a serious blow for morale, especially as there was no other large standing continental force able to take on the British. Okay, so you've been defeated, but now you don't have anybody else that can take a stand, or not just take a stand, but but a large enough force that can um, return the favor and by uh, and getting revenge. So if that's bad enough, uh, May 29th, 1780 might at this time would probably appear to be the final straw that could break the camel's back for this uh, so-called Southern Continental Army, and it just so happens at the Battle of Waxhaws which takes place near Lancaster, South Carolina, which is on the outskirts of uh, Columbia, Charleston's cap uh, South Carolina's capital. Continental forces led by Abraham Buford, and they were really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Their commander, Abraham Buford, wanted to um, engage in a, um, in a battle with um, British officer uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton, Banastray Tarleton was one of the most feared dragoon commanders. These were what we would call like the lightfoot cavalry. They could move very, very quick. And when they engaged their enemy, they never, they didn't believe in any kind of mercy towards their enemy. And that is what proved most notably so at the Waxhaws. So Abraham Buford had initially refused to surrender. But while the white flag was up, meaning a flag of truce that was about to be conducted, chaos immediately ensued. Where a call for surrender had in fact been made, but not everyone was on the same page on the Continental Army side. This call for surrender had been made, but it was backfired when British officer Banastray Tarleton got shot by Patriot forces, which caused Loyalists and British soldiers, Loyalists being those in South Carolina whom, yes, are loyal to the crown, but are supporting the, um, the, British, um, the British troops. This caused the action that unfolded in the um, shooting of Banastray Tarleton, and he does survive. This um, infuriated loyalists and British soldiers to where they denied all requests of truce, aka peaceful surrender. The remaining um, British forces took matters into their own hands by slaughtering. Patriot troops left and right. They slaughtered the troops with swords and bayonets that led to 113 men's deaths. Many were repeatedly stabbed to death even as they were screaming to stop. Even some men's arms were... were I'm not here to, to gross you all out, but this is the reality of war at this point in time, folks. 
there were some men who waved their arms up in the air, pleading for, for truce, pleading for a peaceful surrender, only to have British officers on their horses take their swords and chop their arms off. You talk about barbaric, folks. This was, this was full, full um, scale um, acts of barbarism at its worst. The Patriots were massacred, sadly. 113 men died by means of uh, extreme violence in, in terms of being uh, stabbed to death by uh, bayonets and um, losing a limb or two from a sword or even being stabbed to death by means of a sword. This massacre was known as the Waxhaw Massacre, and the Patriot defeat at Waxhaw led to the infamous future rally cry of the following, Remember the Waxhaws. The defeat at the Waxhaws had allowed British troops to drive out the remaining Continental troop forces in South Carolina. So South Carolina now is pretty much all in British control. Following Charleston's falling into British hands, Thomas Paine would issue Crisis Number 9, focusing on the duration of military engagements and how levels of consistency fluctuated amongst the American people when it came to dealing with the highs and lows of supporting America's cause for independence on the battlefield. You know, the troops don't have to be fighting every day. And yes, it was one thing when the Americans did defeat the British on, on the battle, but it seemed as though these victories were always short-lived, because for every victory we achieved, there always seemed to be two or three setbacks. But of course, the longer the conflict goes, the greater the likelihood that over time, America will prevail. But here again, for Thomas Paine, yes, the levels of consistency are constantly fluctuating to where American people are, are supporting this movement at one minute, and then when there's a defeat or two that follows afterwards, and especially now with the, uh, the fall of Charleston and, and then the horrible uh, massacre at, at the Waxhaws, now people have to wonder, how much more support are we willing to... Um, to fork out for this? Why is it that we um, did the unthinkable at Trenton and Princeton? How is it that we uh, were able to defeat the British up at Bennington? How is it that we were able to do it at Saratoga, but now all of a sudden we can't do it in uh, South Carolina? Well, part of that could simply also be two for um, a couple of things. One, uh, the geography is different, so the style of fighting that went on at Saratoga is probably not going to be the same in the Carolinas. General Washington's, General Washington supported Payne's findings, or let alone, I should say, his works in Crisis 9 by taking his own personal frustrations before Congress with regards to current lackluster of military funding. Washington advised Congress that the army faced a crisis. Not just a crisis, but a crisis that was a never-ending one. You know, yes, members of Congress want separation from England, but at the same time, if you want separation from England, aren't you going to need to keep uh, finding ways to fund uh, money for this? I mean, yes, there are 
members of Congress that do have the money to um, fund the war, but yet they're profiting off of it. But that's a double-edged sword onto itself. But the bottom line is they're still, they're still bickering over how to fund this war. What else did Thomas Paine publish in 1780 that raised eyebrows amongst many in the largest of the 13 states? Well, there's a couple of parts to this, but let's uh, find out those answers. He published what was called Public Good, which called upon having territories west of the 13 states' boundaries be ceded directly to the new American government. The territories past the state boundary lines were not to be placed in the hands of individual states, including individual land speculators. So in other words, all right, look at uh, Pennsylvania, for example. At the time, um, what we now know as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is still technically in British hands. And that territory west of Pittsburgh into what we now know as present-day Ohio and West Virginia, that's in British hands as well. So, at the same time, though, Virginia has um, stakes, or what we call land claim stakes, to the territory. So, in other words, for Thomas Paine, in order for government to, to be secure, in order for government to perhaps function, even in times of uh, uncertainty, the government needs to have control over those territories to prevent um, further uprisings along the frontier, to prevent, say, Indians coming in westward into um, the 13 states that would um, cause a, a scene of um, or a situation where national security might be at stake. And think about this. If you have land speculators um, running the show, then all they care about is just themselves. They don't care about what everyone else uh, thinks in re with regards to the land. So for Thomas Paine, the government is what represents us, we, ourselves. Paine's public good went about upsetting many Virginians, okay? And you know why, folks? Because Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies or states. Virginia's territory... Let's keep in mind, folks, where Virginia's territory goes. But Payne's public good upsets many Virginians of well-known high-end status from George Washington, James Madison, to Thomas Jefferson, as these men were just a handful of wealthy landowners whom claimed territory or lands in the wilderness being present-day Ohio, western Pennsylvania, present-day West Virginia, all the way up to um, territory that is uh, not far from the Great Lakes. Payne's public good pamphlet disputing Western territories would not be resolved until 1787 when Virginia, and Virginia wasn't the only state to cede land, um, to cede land, all, to cede any existing uh, land claims to the U.S. government, but Virginia, being the largest of the 13 states, did so under the guidelines of the Northwest Ordinance, and by doing so, that um, helped make a smooth transition towards establishing um, what would become the first of the five states that would be admitted to the Union in 1803, being Ohio, and then over time, um, in 1817 um, with Indiana, 
uh, Illinois um, around um, 1819, and then uh, Michigan 1835, and Wisconsin by uh, the 1850s. So this Northwest Ordinance basically outlawed slavery, but it would uh, basically pave the way for these new uh, for the, those new five states to be uh, eventually admitted into the Union. Well, what happens on October 19, 1781? The British, under General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his army, surrendered to General George Washington and his Continental Army forces at Yorktown, Virginia. But let's keep in mind, folks, that the surrender of Yorktown on October 19th of 1781 did not officially end the Revolutionary War altogether. As there is still remains fighting in the Carolinas, most notably in South Carolina and in um, portions of North Carolina, but most notably in South Carolina, you've still got troops in um, New York City. So we have to keep in mind that uh, while, yes, the British surrendered at Yorktown, it didn't mean that everybody just packed up their belongings, got on the ships, and went back to their home uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean. But the Revolutionary War's official ending didn't come until two years after the surrender of Yorktown in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. April the 19th of 1783 being the 8th anniversary to when the shots heard round the world happened at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. On that date, uh, Thomas Paine published his final crisis essay, Crisis 13, or one for each state. Paine reflects on the sacrifices made by 13 states over an eight-year course from 1775 to 1783, along with America's future being one of post-war era, where the mission, or rather I should say the goal on Paine's end, called on national unity where all 13 states would submit or forego their separate entities by banding together and coming under the national government's domain, or I should say authority. For Thomas Paine, independence must bring about freedoms, which are essential guarantees, but even the freedoms alone must equate to accountability. So yes, you have... um, one, one does have the right to um, have free speech. One does have the right to assemble and petition. One does have the right to worship freely. But at the same time, there must be accountability with those actions as well. You just can't go around and say whatever is on your mind and engage in um, activity that others could view as uh, being uh, that of character defamation towards another person. So in other words, you know, yes, you can have freedoms, but you've got to learn to exercise them properly. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people uh, in today's um, crazy world, regardless of where people live, freedoms are not always exercised appropriately like they should. Did Congress have any money left over to pay for anything still Let me rephrase the question. Did Congress have any money left over to pay for anything still considered outstanding after the Revolutionary War officially ended come 1783? When something is showing an outstanding status in terms of like money, does that mean that, say, a a bill or a a payment or an installment of of a particular payment has been made? No. 
So anytime you have an outstanding debt, it means that it is uh, still out there and that it has not been uh, completely paid off. But the answer is no. I mean, Congress is pretty much bankrupt, bankrupt itself. And there are many consequences that, um, that come about with this, but there's one in particular that is very um, frightening. There are large numbers of um, troops, most notably Pennsylvania troops, whom a while back had been promised overdue back pay. What does back pay mean, folks? It, it refers to payment for past services where an individual or individuals had not gotten compensated for the work or the services that were performed at, the, at that particular moment in time. Okay, so no, um, no pay has um, taken place, so that means that, it's still, that the pay itself is still outstanding, that it has not been given to these troops. So they've about had it. And they are so fed up to the point where they go about marching onto, onto the steps of the Pennsylvania State House demanding their pay right away. Most members of Congress were so terrified by what was happening that they fled Philadelphia and retreated to Princeton, New Jersey. Well, as for Thomas Paine, he stayed behind in Philadelphia after Congress fled, but he didn't stay there very long. He met an officer, or rather I should say a war officer, named Colonel Joseph Kirkbride, whom welcomed Thomas Paine into his home 30 miles from Philadelphia at Bordentown, New Jersey. Well, you know, if if Congress is bankrupt to the point where they can't even pay, where they can't issue back pay for the Pennsylvania troops, do you think Congress had enough money to pay Thomas Paine for the works he contributed during the war? No. And this left men like George Washington shocked, because even Washington himself knew that there were men whom had enough money of their own who were well off, and yet they didn't want to uh, take the time to see to it that Thomas Paine was looked after. It could have been that some of these men just didn't like him, like Robert Morris. So George Washington was shocked by all this, considering everything that Paine had done from a literary or a writing perspective and keeping people's spirits up when it was ever so needed. Washington himself went before Congress and others to help see Thomas Paine get compensated. Washington's efforts paid off to where New York's Senate in the spring of 1784 provided Paine with a 277-acre farm located north of New York City in New Rochelle, which it was about 20 miles from where uh, Congress would um, establish its new seat. This um, estate, being a 277-acre farm, was, um, was a property that had belonged to a Tory, a one-time Tory or loyalist. And now that Thomas Paine has this 277-acre uh, farm estate, this will now give Paine... Uh, a greater sense of independence of um, independence or a greater security of independence while new york provided thomas paine with a farm estate to call home to pennsylvania provided paine with a pension worth 500 pounds but other states believe it or not like virginia being the largest of the 13 states refused to honor paine for his revolutionary works 
And this obviously upset George Washington a great deal. It also upset James Madison. So whom is to blame in Virginia for not wanting to give Thomas Paine the recognition that he deserves? The post-Revolutionary War generation in Virginia, this was a younger generation, they believed that Thomas Paine threatened their ways of life. How so? This younger generation believed that um, they didn't believe in a strong central government. They wanted a weak government. They didn't believe that if a new government were put into play, that a new government should have broad powers. This younger generation also didn't believe that there should be a, a lot of taxes. <laughs> Maybe it's fair to say this younger generation might be the equivalent of a modern-day uh, libertarian party. As America entered into the post-Revolutionary War uh, status era, were many other people working in agriculture? Yes, 95% of America's population revolved around agriculture. Okay, folks, remember, 95%. Think about it. Nine, the majority of Americans are still living on farms. There's not a huge number of people living in, um, in the cities, but we also have to keep in mind that even before um, hostilities uh, break out to where we officially declare our separation from England, uh, Philadelphia is the largest of the um, of the 13 uh, states in terms of a city population, right at about um, about 30,000. Boston is hovering at 16,000. New York City, 20,000. Charleston, South Carolina, 12,000. That may seem like a lot, and it was for its time, but we're not talking millions of people like we are today at best. So yes, 95% of America's population revolved around agriculture, and many farmers relied upon bartering as a means of making payments. Okay, so if that, what does that tell us right there? That 95% of America's population does not have access to specie, hard money like silver, uh, gold. So if you're going to have to barter, what does that mean? You're going to have to uh, give something with with the hopes that whatever you get back in return will have the same value that you um, that you sold uh, to the person to the other person. So in other words, okay, I need uh, shoes. I need a pair of shoes. What can I give um, the man or the uh, cobbler who makes um, the shoes? I can provide him with um, with uh, resources with some kind of resource that would go towards making a shoe may not be the grandest example, but it's got to have something where both sides are giving each other something that will um, have the same value. So yes, the majority of Americans are re relying upon bartering as a means of uh, making uh, payments or financial transactions. The majority of the Americans paid with IOUs, non-standard paper money. But we should keep in mind, too, that the majority of merchants being creditors opposed paper money. Rhode Island shopkeepers, for example, closed their doors instead of accepting all paper money transactions. And once the Rhode Island legislature made it official to, pay, to make paper money payments illegal, it led some merchants to leave altogether, whereas debtors 
instigated riots and went as far as to breaking into uh, shopkeepers' um, facilities, forcing them to accept paper money without fail. I tell you, the post-Revolutionary War era has not gotten off to a right off to the best start. And I don't know if what I'm about ready to say next is going to make it even better. Farmers from New Hampshire, Western Massachusetts, Maryland, Virginia, and elsewhere went to great extremes by making it known that their resources were limited as to what they could only as to what they could only make payments with via paper money. The extreme measures ra ranged from farmers firing at sheriffs to closing down courthouses to marching directly at their state capitol buildings. What is it, folks, that these people are afraid of? Far the farmers are afraid that their land, or their, their not just the land that they have to, um, to grow their crops and harvest their crops on, they're afraid that not, that not only will that be taken, but their homes as well. And the only way they can make payments on their, on their homes and on property and other essentials is through bartering or paper money. It may not have the same value as specie, but it, it's the only thing they've got to survive. These acts of extremism in the post-revolutionary war era, in post-revolutionary war era America, made Thomas Paine question whether or not men everywhere could in fact govern themselves without resorting to violence. Paine feared that if nothing drastically improved, the current state... Paine himself feared that if nothing drastically improved, that the current state of rebellion, with regards to the current state of rebellion in America, that America herself would collapse into anarchy. You know, it's one thing to have uh, people take matters into their own hands, but these are not isolated incidents, people. These are becoming norms. And in, in 1786, those of you who were with me a year ago, when we talked about Shays's Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle, written by L Leonard Pitts. For those of you who are new um, to my podcasts, I recommend um, listening to the podcast series on Shays's Rebellion, but I will tell you this much right here. 1786, Shays's Rebellion, led by former Revolutionary War officer Daniel Shays, he wasn't the true. He wasn't the uh, lead instigator. He played a part in the rebellion, but the government was looking for someone to blame, and they wanted to blame this man. And one of the reasons why they blamed him was because, um, for one, he was presented with a uh, sword by none other than Marquis de Lafayette for his um, service. Daniel Shays, however, went broke. Not by means of uh, improper spending, but he just was struggling to, um, to stay afloat financially. And what did he do? He sold his sword as a means of getting extra money. Well, this upset the government. They felt that Shays had betrayed his fellow um, American Revolutionary War officers. So they needed someone to blame, so they decided to um, make Daniel Shays uh, be the guy uh, who instigated this all. Well, Dan Daniel Shays did um, take it upon himself to arouse farmers around him by persuading them that local lawyers and judges had teamed up with Boston merchants, bankers, 
and state legislators whom they felt would take whom they felt would be the ones to take away their farms as a means of securing payment on taxes owed to the Massachusetts government. Shays's rebellion, the incident alone was the straw that broke the camel's back, the final straw rather I should say, and this incident alone scared many, most notably George Washington whom came out of retirement, not because he felt like he had to do it. He knew he had no other choice but to, but to um, be called upon to um, rescue America. Not just Washington, but other um, able-bodied men like James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, George Reed, John Dickinson, uh, to name a few, uh, Benjamin Franklin as well. These men were just a handful of men whom knew that um, that America's um, that America as a nation was in trouble, and that the government she was operating under, being that inf being the Articles of Confederation, was fledgling. It was um, it just was no longer relevant, and that if nothing was done to change it, that anarchy would remain, and not only would anarchy remain, but that the United States would no longer exist. So these, you know, I thought that uh, when Thomas Paine published The American Crisis, when he said these are the times that try men's souls, is it fair to say that once again in post-revolutionary war America that the famous uh, first sentence to The American Crisis can be used again? These are the times that try men's souls. 100% and beyond, yes. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, in this um podcast segment and when I'm on the air again next we're going to um, learn about where Thomas Paine goes next is he going to stay in America or will he go overseas to help another nation deal with its um, existing uh, problems who knows but wherever Paine goes next he will be in for surprises for better and for worse well, thank you again, as always, for listening. You guys are terrific listeners, and uh, keep getting that word out to others who would like to um, listen to podcasts or even um, take part by doing their own podcasts through Anchor. One, it's free. Secondly, the opportunities are limitless. And third, once you get going, um, there's no going back. Thank you again, as always, for listening, and I look forward to being with you all again uh, next time. Have a great day and continue to stay safe. Take care for now.